Alright, what's up everyone? Um, you are listening to the weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. I'm your co-host Michael Ippolito and I'm joined as always by the indefatigable Tyler Neville. What's going on Tyler? Indefatigable. I don't sleep I... much. Never get tired. <laughs> You're relentless yeah. in your pursuit of knowledge. Should I make my weekly comment about your shirt this week, or are we going for like cool hipster Williamsburg? Let's get it out of the way. Let's get it out of the way. Let's get it out of the way. What do I gotta wear? Do I gotta just wear a black t-shirt? Is that dude? Just wear wear the factory man's clothes. Be a man (laughs) of people. (laughs) That's me. God. All right. Christ. All right. You know, I'm gonna completely redo redo my wardrobe, and it's gonna get very plain crew neck t-shirts, single color, boom, mm-hmm. you've done it. All right, I, I hope that was the outcome that you wanted. All right, let's get into it because we've actually got a pretty big week here. Only two stories this week, right? And there's only really one that we want to spend a lot of time on. Elon Musk issued a statement that Tesla would no longer be accepting uh, Bitcoin as payment um, for their cars. And then I also want to talk a little bit about uh, the probe into Binance by the US Justice Department and the IRS. Um, so let's start with the the Musk Tesla news uh, because this has obviously caused quite a bit of a stir on Twitter. Uh, I think there's a lot to unpack here. I think there's a lot to unpack. So I'm just gonna go rapid fire here on just what the facts are and then we can kind of get into our opinions, contextualizing everything. But here's what actually happened. So on Wednesday, we're recording this uh, one day early, uh, Thursday afternoon this week. Um, But so yesterday, Wednesday, Elon Musk released a statement from his Twitter that Tesla will suspend vehicle purchases using Bitcoin. In his exact words in the statement, we are concerned about rapidly increasing use of fossil fuels for Bitcoin mining and transactions, especially coal, which has the worst emissions of any fuel. Cryptocurrency is a good idea on many levels, and we believe that it has a promising future, but this cannot come at a great cost to the environment. Tesla will not be selling any Bitcoin, which everyone on crypto Twitter... (laughs) honed in on, predictably, uh, and we intend to use it for transactions as soon as mining transitions to more sustainable energy. We're also looking at other cryptocurrencies that use less than 1% of Bitcoin's energy per transaction. But, uh, Elon followed up by citing data from the Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance, the CCAF. Uh, they basically put together this um, index, the Cambridge Bitcoin Energy Consumption Index, which estimates Bitcoin's energy consumption on an annualized basis. So at the current time, they're estimating that uh, Bitcoin's annual usage is 144.82 terawatts. Um, in case you were like me and have no idea what that means, uh, that's about 0.55% of global energy production and roughly the amount that a small country like Sweden might consume. So that's, that's what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, now we can kind of contextualize this. Why do we think Elon's doing this? Um, what does this really mean for Bitcoin and the industry as a whole? Um, I think for me, we might not agree a hundred percent. So maybe this will be interesting. Yeah. I, I want to ask is- you, cause you're, you're deeper into the crypto stuff and I come this, come at this from like a macro perspective, but I think it's better to, to go bottoms up because I think your knowledge of this stuff is far surpassing mine. So, so I think the the theme of this weekly roundup is Bitcoin is growing up. Uh, you know, we've talked about before how Bitcoin, as it gets elevated onto the world stage, um, it deserves uh, a better class of, honestly, critics and just more nuanced discussion around it. Um, and for a long time, 
you know, Bitcoin, as it goes through waves, it gets what's called FUD, right? It's just fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Uh, and for a long time, the environmental impact of Bitcoin has been labeled as FUD. I'll be clear, I th I'm still very bullish on the long-term uh, prospect for Bitcoin. This hasn't fundamentally changed my view. I do now think that this is just an area that needs to be addressed in a more nuanced way than the laser-eyed, you know, people on crypto Twitter saying, this is actually a good thing. And, you know, I saw some posts, it was like, of that statement that I read out, you know, it was like noise, 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 and then they boxed in signal, right, on big help, and they didn't sell any. And there are these tweets that Elon is trying to like push the price down. Guys, you are missing the point. He clearly said what he meant. He is concerned about the environment. And look, at a certain point, Bitcoin uses a shit ton of energy. <laughs> like, that's not really debatable. Um, we can get into the nuance of how actually they use a lot of, uh, you know, it's actually the energy mix that matters. And there is something about using stranded energy that's not as damaging to the environment overall. But you can't just go out and say Bitcoin doesn't use energy. It does. The big question is, what, what are you getting for that energy consumption, right? Is the output of Bitcoin actually something that is a net positive to the world? If you believe that Bitcoin is a net positive, then you say, okay, well, there's obviously a cost to that. Everything that we use causes energy to some degree, right? The internet uh, takes energy to run. Uh, countries in general, militaries, governments, everything requires energy. You and you're my life force, our sustenance, right? We, we use energy to collect food. What is The question is when you are expending energy on a network like Bitcoin, what are you getting in return? Um, and that's, that's kind of a hard, a hard question to answer. But I think uh, overall, yeah, I, I don't know. This is something that's going to actually need to be to be wrestled with. And in, in a space like Bitcoin, uh, crypto in general, narratives is just really important. And because these are really reflexive assets, right? Which when you don't have a great understanding of the fundamentals, price essentially tells you uh, or tells people broadly the, the value um, of the asset. So everyone cheered as Elon pumped the price of Bitcoin, essentially from 40K up to 60. Mm -hmm. And was like, all right, meme god uh, Elon here. Uh, hell yeah, meme us all the way to the moon. And now it's going the other way. And suddenly people aren't happy. So I, I yeah, I have a whole separate read on this. I know you do. All right, so give yeah. us give us the macro view here because we approach this from totally different perspectives. Yeah, while while I'm not discounting like, you know, the energy impact, I'm not like a climate change denier, and I'm very moderate in terms of that stuff. I think this is such it's a fugazi. It's a, it's like uh, the prestige where he's trying to do one thing over here and doing something entirely else over here. What I really think this is is. Elon Musk knows the cost of capital is rising. And I'm going to walk you through kind of what's going on in the macro market. And, and what he is doing, he's moving one step closer to selling his Bitcoin because he probably needs to conserve his cash when the cost of capital is rising in the marketplace. For the past year, unprofitable companies and, and very risk forward companies have gotten the benefit and the wins at their back from you know the Fed fiscal policy, and all that stuff. Now, here's how it starts. IPOs and SPACs have been on wildfire, right? They've gotten a low cost of capital that's unjustifiable. And what's happens when they go public is there's a really small float to the shares. So every incremental dollar that goes into these stocks pushes up the price. Now, what kind of happened was ETFs that 
kind of invested in innovation and, and all these new futuristic technologies, they all had really small floats. And after 90 to 180 days after the floats open up, insiders are allowed to sell. Now, when insiders sell, they can sell almost double the amount of shares in the float. And that's what's really pressuring these ETFs like Kathy Woods is there's there's more shares available in the floats in these underlying stocks that are held in these baskets. And that's pulling down Tesla. That's pulling down Bitcoin because she owns some of that. She owns GPTC. She owns 7 million shares of GPTC. And that's pulling down. It's in pulling down the entire spectrum of these very risk forward things. I think Elon knows he played that card on the way up. And now he's like, oh crap, on the way down, it's going to get ugly. I need to manage my cash because we're still not at like, you know, Amazon, you know, takeoff speed. It's, it's a high capital expense business. He needs to manage his cash. This step is a virtue signaling external kind of thing to say, oh, you know what? We, we did more work on this and we're, we sold our Bitcoin. Now we take that cash, right? And they probably already sold it. We don't really know. But I think this is a cash conserve play when the cost of capital is going up in the marketplace. Mm. And now take it one step further. Here's three examples of stocks that are high flyer, low float stocks that are now imploding. Palantir's down 21% year to date. Snowflake's down 31% year to date. Affirm down 50% year to date. Now Max Levchin is the CEO of Affirm. He is part of the PayPal mafia. He probably is talking to Elon Musk and saying, hey, listen, this is sort of what's happening. The supply of all this stuff is overwhelming. Get prepared. Cost of capital is rising. I think he's preparing his balance sheet so that he can, this, this, whatever this outflow of assets is until the Fed starts yield curve control and there's another big fiscal push, this is him preparing for the downside. Cause like he's still a very risky company. He's in all these fast growing ETFs. You know, he's, he's one of the biggest ETF like names when they do a new ETF, Tesla goes in. So I think he's preparing for that with this like charade of like saying, you know, ESG is like, you know, we're, we're not, we're not selling our Bitcoin yet, but we, there's another alternative. It's, it's a charade. Like he, he is the king of this. And I think that his true gift is he understands that like in a market with 0% interest and like where you can lever up your company and borrow money at zero, you know, convertible bonds for like moderate amounts of interest, he needs to do that ad infinitum to make, to make Tesla work. And it's, it's impressive. And that's really his real motivation. So I'm curious. So in that scenario, right, the big unknown here is they're not selling the Bitcoin that they have, although they did sell a little bit to quote unquote, test the liquidity. Mm -hmm. Maybe some people feel differently about that now. But he only is stopping accepting payment for uh, Tesla vehicles in the form of Bitcoin. Hey, we have no idea how many people are paying for Tesla mm -hmm. and Bitcoin. I would guess it's a really small number. Same reason why no one uses the, light the Lightning Network. Nobody wants to spend their Bitcoin dummies. Why would you do that? It counters the entire narrative, but you don't actually know how significant this is. If so, in your macro case here, he actually needs to manage his cash position. Why hasn't he sold his Bitcoin? I think it, this is the moving a piece on the, the chessboard that gives him the, the right to sell it at some point. It's mm -hmm. him saying, okay, I'm not being flippant about this. We did our research. 
now we're selling it. But he's really probably just looking at like all the, the garbage going on in the market, the Fed getting pressured. Here's, here's the other big macro thing going on. Inflation just hit 4.2%. The Fed's buying $40 billion a month of, of housing. They're definitely going to stop that because everyone's like, holy crap, there's no housing left. And then $80, trillion, $80 billion a month uh, of treasuries. And, and there's now like the, the beating drums saying like, you guys need to like reel this in a little bit. Even Rick Reeder from BlackRock was like, yeah, they need to pull back on, on the, the stimulus. So I think that's really where they're all preparing from, you know? Yeah. You, yeah, you might be right. I think like to zoom back in on the micro of Bitcoin a little bit, one thing that really threatens Bitcoin here is this ESG stuff. I, I don't know what your opinions are on this. I, it's really hard for me to tell if this is real or not. I am not in the world of ESG. I will tell you, coming from the world of consulting, I'm scarred when I see these, you know, like if you look at ESG, like what's in our matrix here, and they have these little definitions of like, this is what constitutes this. I'm like, this is bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> this just reeks of bullshit. But I will tell you, like the facts don't back that up. So if you look at um, the amount of flows that I, so this is a Morningstar study, they're kind of tracking flows into ESG open-ended funds last year, I mean, it's been, you know, it's parabolic, the amount of flows that are there moving into those types of funds. So last year, uh, 51 billion in AUM flowed into funds like that, uh, 20 billion coming in Q4 alone. Um, if you also look at what institutional investors are saying, there's a clear mandate to become more environmentally friendly. So you've seen kind of chatter from BlackRock, um, and then potentially exercising some control over their investments in September of 2019, Investors with totaling 2.4 trillion in assets, that's probably like 4 trillion by this point, uh, they pledged that uh, by 2050, their entire portfolios would be carbon neutral. And that includes the likes of CalPERS, CDPQ, Pension Denmark, Swiss Re, Allianz. These are real people. So what I could imagine being really damaging to Bitcoin is if Bitcoin gets labeled as a an, an asset that's bad for the environment, that could impact the flows into Bitcoin. Right. Yeah. And we talk we talk about this this framework. Bitcoin is essentially this Pac-Man, which as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, it unlocks new sources of demand. This could damage that bid. Um, That's a really good point. And no, I would not discount that. And I'm also for like, you know, all ESG stuff. Mm. I just don't think. I just I think about the the opposite, which is like how much wasted energy happens elsewhere. And this could be. And that's just my English brain rather than like a scientific math brain. So maybe I'm not the person to ask on this, but I got to imagine that this network is so much more efficient than like billions of people exchanging paper tickets. I, I don't know. Okay. So here's the, the bull case for Bitcoin um, from an energy perspective. So it mm -hmm. does actually incentivize um, capture of energy sources that are heretofore being wasted essentially. So there's a big problem in energy grids. We, the technology to transport energy over great distances doesn't really exist or it's completely not economically feasible to do so. So basically that means that you kind of have to use energy at the site that it's actually produced. Now, you know, if you're looking at fossil fuels, right, which are the main, that industry is mainly responsible for carbon emissions uh, and climate change in general, um, they do this process called flaring which basically they have, they release, you know, they, they burn this stuff into the atmosphere because they've got 
no other way, to, they've got no other way to use that energy. It's the best way to get rid of it. So essentially what you're doing, what you're seeing is mining rigs set up um, in these places locally, and then they can sell that energy. They can use that energy to actually put it to productive use uh, in the Bitcoin network. So what you are seeing, uh, the bullish sign for energy in general, is that the Bitcoin network is actually coming up with more efficient, positive uses for that wasted energy. Huh. Now, I like that. So that's very cool. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah. On the other hand, it's unrealistic today to say that the majority of you know energy that gets consumed by the Bitcoin network is producing carbon neutral waste. That's just not true. Uh, but you could see a future um, where that actually is the case. And I think it is literally going to take this industry. We have to rally around those sorts of uses. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's fair to say. Yeah. All right. So what, my last. What's the fallout on this? Okay, we, I mean, it's kind of funny, like, we've talked about how stuff that should move the market doesn't, and then mm -hmm. stuff that shouldn't move the market actually does. So Elon Musk helped us meme our way, you know, from 40,000 to 60,000. That, that's, that's not an insignificant amount of movement for the market. Um, was, that, was that really what it was, though? I have, I have a hard time believing that. Like, it was a big part of it. it I, I of think it. that's, I think. I don't think people make investment decisions at an institutional level because of a guy who's turned out to be flippant and like kind of crazy and wants to go to Mars. Like, I think they're looking at it from like a more mathematical perspective, which is really just an arbitrage of interest rates. And yeah. you can get, a you know, the futures curve offers a better return than it does in, you know, anywhere else. I think that that's the decisions that's being made on an institutional level that took us, you know, to 60 K, but yes, it's a great story. You know, the media loves it. They love, you know, the Einsteins and the, you know, the Thomas Jefferson type brainiac Tesla's and Elon Musk's. It's a great story to tell, but like, I really don't think that puts billions and billions of dollars to work. It's not like people aren't, are people that much of a lemming to be like, okay, now I got the free pass. Elon Musk can do it. Like, I don't know. I'm curious. I'm really I hating. don't know, man. Am I I'm hating? Just looking at what happened. <laughs> look, look, look. I will say this. Look at what happened after this news came out. The market yeah. dumped 20% in a span of like three hours. So yeah, it's, you know, at the time of this recording, Bitcoin's like flirting. It's around 48,000 or something like that. Um, I will say one bullish thing just in, in terms of the short term is it seems like there's a really strong, I am not a chart guy. My God, I can't even believe I'm mentioning, but it looks like there's pretty strong resistance around 47,000. It bounced mm. like a rock. You can, you can see uh, on the chart, if you pull it up, like it just boom. Yeah. Um, all right. That's, that's the extent of my technical. My technical <laughs> Technician. Oh God. Uh, so I will say that's good, but look, I mean, he announced this and the entire market dropped 20%. And it was led by Bitcoin. Yeah, but that, see, the, is that really what made it drop? Like, I would argue that it's more GBTC. Like, GBTC under underperformance, 20% discount to NAV. Like, there should be hedge funds in there scooping up that ARB, you know, left and right. But the truth mm -hmm. is, it's because Kathy Wood's getting outflows because of all the non-profitable tech stuff. Is mm -hmm. The way I look at it is completely different. Like, yes, I think that the headline gives the impetus. It's like... It, it's like the the straw that broke the camel's back. It's like you have this like 
market structure that is so weak right now, given you know the outflows, and then that just hits it over. What's fascinating to get into the next part is the Binance news didn't move it. Wait, before we get into Binance, so the okay. last, I, this I actually think is sorry, the most important conclusion from okay. this entire thing is if you look at the relationship between ETH and Bitcoin. So Hit me with that. Yeah, so one key level that a lot of people pay attention to is ETH to Bitcoin, right? And that's essentially what you get, um, that, that's the ratio of the price between ETH and Bitcoin. If you look at that chart, it is going in a steady upward direction like this. And this was actually happening before any of this news, right? Mm. So it was kind of hovering around, like, I think at its very low, it was like 0.03, then it moved to 0.45, then it was 0.55, now it's 0.7, it's 0.75. Mm-hmm. There are really smart people in this space, like the likes of Three Arrows Capital, basically saying that that trend is only set to continue. And it now seems like one of the big outcomes here might be an ETH Bitcoin flipping. That long-awaited flipping might actually happen. And I think one of the interesting, if you're in this community, if you're in the community of crypto and digital assets, you're going to see some inter-community warfare breakout here. Oh, yeah, yeah, some real conflict. And it's going to be centered around this like proof of work proof of stake narrative um and wouldn't that make sense to what would happen though like that it's you can't have so many winners like you have to have kind of like these little battles if you can't have ten thousand projects you know during the 2000 tech boom you had all these companies go to the wayside josh wolf big fan of his he's like 90 percent of VC backed companies are dog shit. It's only 10% that really have something. And so if this is the end of the macro cycle of this next cycle, that's what you would see is that battle of, of, you know, who's going to win the battle? Who are the last men standing when the cost of capital rises? Right. And the narratives die. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so this is here, I'm resurrecting an old narrative. There used to be a lot of discussion, you never hear it anymore, between mm-hmm. proof of work versus proof of stake. Like that was a thing that people spent a lot of time debating at one point in time. Yeah. Uh, it seems like proof of stake has won out on that. That doesn't mean that Bitcoin is going to become obsolete. I'm just saying none of the new projects that you're seeing are even trying to do proof of proof of work. They've all pretty much failed. Um, and I, I think... People will argue over that. I think that will be the narrative that you see play out. But to me, the more important narrative, actually, crypto is governance. Seriously, crypto is an innovation in governance. It is Mm -hmm. a new way to own networks. It is a new revenue model. And it is just a new form of governance for money and networks. So, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the primary assets that any of these protocols have is the community behind it. So when I purely look at the Bitcoin community versus the ETH community, I'm not saying I'm in any one of these camps. I don't really care. I support everything. I'm happy. I'm I'm a cheerleader. I'm a supporter. I take ad dollars from anyone who wants to give them. <laughs> oh, God, Evan, we got to cut that out. But what I will say... It's an objective. But what I will say is that it seems like... Bic- and you, you can see there's good reason for this, right? This is kind of actually a, a... In a sense, it's a bull argument. Like, one of the things that makes Bitcoin so trustworthy is it has this really calcified kind of community and to get any changes passed through that that bitcoin network it just it takes a lot of takes a lot of force basically Mm -hmm. it's really really difficult to do 
ETH is not really like that. You're seeing huge changes to the underlying consensus mechanism that's being organized by this community. I think in the long run, I would actually bet on a community that's more flexible and open to innovation. That's not to say that Bitcoin is not worthwhile. It certainly is. Um, but I'm start that's the viewpoint I'm starting to, uh, to determine here. Like I think over long stretches of time, flexibility and openness to innovation, which is clearly core to the Ethereum ethos, I think that stuff wins out in the long run. Um, yeah, talking to the institutional desks, they're saying that they're now seeing a more an abundance of ETH institutional buyers as they get their heads around DeFi and how to generate yield in the products that you can kind of get access to there. I think Bitcoin was the first story. It's like, hey, look at this thing. It's email. You can send electronic mail. You know, and then, you know, ETH is kind of like AOL Instant Messenger. And you're like, okay, I can send like gifts on this and I can send, you know, weird website links and, and all, all other stuff that's like different. And I, I think the dynamic nature of ETH is, is what's appealing now to, to institutional investors. Whereas like, but it, I don't think Bitcoin's going to die. Like, I, I it's still like not at all. It's still no. going to eat gold. Like I think it'll still arb ten trillion in in capital from gold. Oh my god! Wait, can we talk about gold for a second? Like, hey, gold, how you doing there, buddy? What's well, going on? Well, dude, how about this? This is why I think the flows are mostly driven by like ETFs and Kathy Wood. Gold's mm -hmm. up today. This is why you own inflation assets. Is like. In in this atmosphere, you're at an end of a long term sovereign debt bubble, and like gold's back at eighteen fifty, silver's up at twenty seven bucks, and I think like that's really what Bitcoin should be doing, but it's getting roped in with the flow show out out of these passive ETFs, and that's just what happens when you get paired with that stuff. Yeah, I so agree. I don't know. Interesting. You, you know, that's yeah, it's probably a better take than than what I was saying. I think. Like overall, just to sum up what we just talked about, I like my takeaway here is I think this is a bump in the road for Bitcoin. I do think that in the short term, this community needs to usher better responses to Elon's whatever he's tweeting out than just we just need to improve the dialogue around here as, a, as, a, as an industry, I think, is my big takeaway. Crypto's growing up uh, when it gets a more elevated place on the world stage. It deserves more nuanced discussion and the ability to handle criticism. I think that. Bitcoin tends to have temporary correlations, and I think this is short-term price action, and I don't, this doesn't change my fundamental thesis about Bitcoin. To me, the most interesting thing is to look at the relationship between ETH and Bitcoin. Um, and I think there's a not too small chance that this just ushered in or, or, or moved ahead or increased the percentage chance that there's going to be a flipping. Um, that's my big takeaway. Yeah, well, we will we will be watching. I I like I still like them both. I still think we're heading into a highly. I still like them both. I don't want to get ripped apart on Twitter. Is basically I'm, now I'm just hedging my hedging my own uh, my mentions. Um, <laughs> if, if I got any engagement on Twitter. All right, on to this next story. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about uh, Binance. So this actually just happened earlier today. So who knows? Uh, even by tomorrow, and this comes out, there might be more information, but. Essentially, the U.S. Justice Department and IRS is looking into Binance. Um, I want to get this out there and just say immediately, the uh, 
the exchange is not being charged with any issue of wrongdoing right now, uh, which is really important to state. Um, basically, the two agencies, they're investigating issues around money laundering and tax violations. Uh, it seems as though the money laundering is of greater concern than the tax violations, um, but they're two separate things. So basically, you know, Chainalysis did this report last year. Uh, they tied um, or they found that more funds tied to criminal activity flowed through Binance than basically any other exchange. Uh, and actually, if you look at, you know, there's a lot of focus being paid, paid attention to this because there's this recent cyber attack against the Colonial Pipeline. Um, in which $5 million in Monero was paid out to in ransom to these European hackers. Um, so it's kind of fresh on everyone's mind. Uh, also, you know, the CFTC is worried that U.S., you know, technically blind finance blocks um, U.S. residents from transacting there, but they're worried that uh, U.S. residents are using, engaging in derivatives-based transactions on the exchange. Um, so that's what's going on. Uh, mm -hmm. That's what's going on there. Interesting that that didn't have a bigger reaction in the price of digital assets, or or maybe maybe it was paired with the Elon Musk stuff too. But yeah, the headline sounds scarier, and I think that this is something that we all kind of knew was going to happen eventually. Yeah, anyway. I agree. I like, agree. It, it's just it's grown up, like you said. You got it. You got to kind of unturn those rocks and deal with the consequences of building a basically transcendental system of, of transferring value. Yeah. Do you like that word? That was my, I, that was my SAT word. Or is your, let's see the thesaurus. You definitely yeah. got that. Transcendental. Right? <laughs> <laughs> spelling What's your vibe on this? Um, yeah, I think overall, my like this the reason why the theme of this episode is just bitcoin growing up is i think sunshine is the best disinfectant and there was no way like i think everyone knew that crypto wasn't going to continue to operate in the way that it has in the past as it gets larger we need to find a way to bring this to a more mainstream audience and also look there are laws we have laws for a reason so there have been a couple pretty high profile investigations recently of kind of differing severity but you saw tether you saw ripple you saw BitMEX all get investigated. And by the way, none of those should have been surprises. Those are things that people have been saying most likely should or will be investigated for long periods of time. I'm not making any comments on my thoughts on, on any one of those three, but I think at a certain point, we are just gonna have to interact with authorities in a more transparent way. I'm not saying that the authorities are always right. There will probably be huge botches in terms of enforcement and regulation, but overall, we gotta fit a framework around what's going on here. And actually, I think the reason why the market didn't sell off is once you get past that headline, you can see that Binance is cooperating. It seems like they're do acting in good faith. Um, and probably it will be, it will make institutions feel better, right? Knowing that enforcement agencies are paying attention to this because yeah. if they think that they're operating outside of rule of law, guess what? They're not going to get involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. I think yeah. it's, if anything, it just makes it, you get the, the compliance check from your institutional asset manager and say, now they're cleaning this, the business up and we're all good. Like liquidity is coming in, you know, that's, it, that's the big, big thing in the room. Yeah. And you have the right people on the right seats over there. I think, you know, the Brian Brooks being there is, is huge. They're talking to the right counterparties. So it's not like they're kind of trying to close the books on anybody. Um, 
that's my read. Yeah. And for those unaware, Brian Brooks, he was the, for a little while, he was the acting head of the U.S. Comptroller of the Currency, right? So he passed a lot. He, and he used to be, he was at Coinbase. I forget if he was their chief legal officer. He was, he was high. He was senior on the legal team, basically, at, at Coinbase. And he passed through a lot of kind of friendly regulation when he, at his time at the um, OCC. So, yeah, I mean, in, in retrospect, it probably looked like Binance knew that this was coming. Uh, they're also, you can tell, like, Bloomberg was the one who broke this news, uh, you can tell from that article they're also kind of staffing up um, on their presence in D.C., which, again, like none of that is wrong, right? That's exactly what's supposed to happen, right? You actually want companies to be able to speak and advocate for themselves and the industry in general. Um, I think this is all happening kind of as it should, basically. Um, Agreed. Yeah. And I will say it's better for everyone, including U.S. institutions. We, we agreed on something, by the way, today. Look at that. Usually we're in agreement. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> there was this one funny episode where like you were totally wrong and, you know, I presented the right view, but, uh, yeah, usually we're, <laughs> usually we're totally in agreement. Yeah. Um, I, I will say like the last thing on this Binance thing is, you know, if you are like one of the biggest challenges for sophisticated traders in this market right now is just the fragmentation of liquidity across all these different venues. And, you know, we're, we've talked about the basis trade, which is essentially, you know, going short futures, buying spot, waiting for, for those two values to converge and you essentially extract that yield, that those, that those opportunities are only available um, in, for the most part on these offshore exchanges. And mm -hmm. if you are a US-based institution, you can't trade on those exchanges. So you're essentially limited entirely to CME if you wanna trade derivatives. Mm -hmm. And that, that ARB does not exist on CME. So- yeah. Isn't it crazy how yeah, fast This is good. Happened. Yeah. I know, I know. Um, so, so all this stuff is good, I would say. Um, but yeah, look, I, I think overall um, it was a big week, but nothing, nothing here should shake anyone's fundamental. I guess if you were surprised by any of this stuff, it's like then you should reevaluate how serious you should, because the, the, the Binance thing shouldn't be surprising. I think if anything, this is a positive development mm -hmm. and Elon, yeah, Elon's Elon. Um, yeah, he's meme Lord King Elon. I, I still think the jury's out. We'll see if that guy goes down as a hero or villain in the annals of history. Uh, we shall see. I don't know. I, what, here's why I think I said in one of my newsletters this week, it really comes down to a policy decision because Right now we're in this pocket of, I think we hit a high inflation print. The CPI hit 4.2. That's putting pressure on the Fed to tighten, to taper. And essentially like that's taken, the market just fell on that massively, right? Because they're now like pricing in some sort of tightening or at least tapering. And I think at some point the fixed income market will constrict up and they, they'll have a choice of whether or not to let deflation happen, let a little bit of froth come out of the market. Mm -hmm. But I don't think they will because pensions are only 80% funded. I think they're going to make the, the, the case to cap yields, keep printing, and then Tesla and all the other you know crazy stuff takes off again. But right now we're in this like the inflationary commodity inflationary pressures have picked up enough to put pressure on the fed to raise rates and now we're in this purgatory of a political decision and i think we'll probably stay there 
and bounce around a while until we get, you know, 10 year rates really spiking here. I think we're in this like consolidation phase, but longer term, I'm going to bet on the Luke Romans. Like you have 130% debt to GDP. You're going to have to print your way out of this because if you don't, we're in, we're in an actual depression. And so I'm holding on, you know, to my, to my Bitcoin and maybe I'll lighten up a little bit on the alt stuff. That's, you know, a, a bit more risky, but Longer term, I'm like, God, I don't see any other way out of this but inflation. And the dollar will tell us. The dollar will tell us. So we had a big bounce on, on Wednesday and the dollar. It's kind of falling again. We'll see if that keeps going. Oh, my God. You know this was a big week. We didn't even talk about Stanley Druckenmiller uh, saying that the U.S. dollar would lose reserve currency status in 15 years. Yeah. I mean, that guy has it stone cold. Like his backdrop his macro view of things he trades around it and and expectations and what's happening a year from now and what your comp was a year before and all that stuff but like he has it's unflappable of what he said in 2015 to now the problems have only gotten bigger and worse and debt to gdp grows the liabilities of the government grow and growth just will never keep up so the only relief valve is the dollar falling and, and I think that, you know, just to maybe present a, a super bullish case for Bitcoin, I mean, that narrative for Bitcoin just has not changed in the slightest bit, right? If you look at the way the existing, the existing system is set up, what the different pressures are, they, central banks, as much as people hate on Jerome Powell, they're doing what they absolutely have to do, right? This is an issue of demographics. It's stunted growth. Uh, you can't, you know, we have all these liabilities, you know, in the form of things like pensions and other stuff that we absolutely need to meet mm -hmm. in order to get from point A to point B, the, the best mechanism that we have is to just print dollars and devalue the currency. Yeah. Um, but Drucker really, made a point uh, to that point, you know, who pays for that the most is he said, it's my kids in Harlem. It's, it's the people who get killed from the, the commodity inflation, the real, the, the inflation of the dollar falling. And that's the, that's the bigger problem. And we're going to have class warfare. You know, if you and don't intergenerational too, intergenerational, people don't talk about that a lot, but Thanks. yeah. And, and yeah. here's the last thing I'll say. I got some kickback when I called it a boomer Ponzi scheme, which it's kind of a joke, but if you really like tap, I wanted to say it more out of like the ethos of what millennials and Gen Zers feel that haven't basically hit a home run in a fast growing tech company is like they they're delaying marriage they're delaying you know having children they're they're not getting in relationships japan did this before people aren't getting married in japan either and it's who pays all the liabilities if your population is shrinking so like i wasn't trying to be like screw you boomer i was like these are real things that just like the mainstream media will catch up to in, I think, the next couple of years. And when the boomer control of stuff kind of like falls, we are in the fourth turning. Like if, if the Trump presidency and all this stuff hasn't taught you anything, we're in the fourth turning. And I think we're going to have to talk about these issues because they're going to get worse and worse if we don't. I probably shouldn't have said boomer Ponzi scheme, but 
it kind of is. Like everything's kind of a Ponzi scheme. Bitcoin's a Ponzi scheme. The difference is Bitcoin's confidence is growing in the, the Ponzi level. And this legacy system, the, the confidence, it's all a confidence game, is, is declining. Because you need the majority of population to believe in something, believe in a system. The equity needs to be distributed, you know, equitably, right? Right now, that's not happening. Like, so to be, and I don't think that, I mean, how do people define a Ponzi scheme? If you just define a Ponzi scheme as any scheme that needs to grow in order for it to continue to be sustainable, then yeah, every single thing is a Ponzi scheme. I, I don't actually understand that because like, I get it. When you think of Ponzi scheme, you think of Bernie Madoff and that is clearly a Ponzi scheme because there's yeah. nothing really productive going on. But if you only are defining a Ponzi as something that needs to grow in order to be sustainable, you're describing every economic system. So congratulations. You, you are, but if you do it just with debt, that's where I think the confidence is waning. It's like, you're not doing it out of like, it's great when you grow a real Ponzi scheme and then grow real stuff out of it, you know? But when you do it and manufacture, financially manufacture things by handing one part of the economy a large portion of debt to satisfy the liabilities on this side, that's your, your, that's generational warfare, like you said. And I don't see that why that's, if I was a boomer and I was waiting for my retirement money that I paid in for, I'd probably feel a little bit like, screw you, like millennial, like I went to Vietnam, who are you? And like, I, that is so fair. It's so fair. But it's also fair for millennials to be like, I can't afford, you know, childcare for my kid and to work because both parents are barely keeping up with inflation. That's, that's a real vibe in millennials and Gen Zers and, and Gen Xers too. And I, I just wanted to present that objectively. I think that's a really good point. Uh, and actually, if you go back, you know, what birthed one of the greatest periods to be alive in all of history right? This huge economic boom that essentially took place in between. And I know there were periods of, you know, you wouldn't have wanted to necessarily live through, but like, you know, the sixties all the way up through, uh, you know, now, I guess what, I mean, the, that, that all came as kind of a, a tertiary result of the GI bill and the massive wealth transfer. That was essentially a gift for saying, Hey, you guys really put the entire country on your back. World war two, you suffered a lot. Here's a massive, transparency of wealth yeah. from us to you and now you gotta write a bigger pa paper on that i yeah, really yeah. i really want to hear about this yeah um so stay tuned for that but i but I, I think this is just this is just intergenerational kind of conflict here coming to a head uh and everyone's kind of feeling at the at the moment like they've got a raw deal i don't really know how it uh uh resolves itself to be to be totally honest um strong leadership we need some strong leadership we do need some. We need someone to talk about this stuff. I think Biden yeah. is kind of getting there. I'm like, you know, I think he's got some, you know, family stuff coming down the pipe. So I've got one. I'm watching this show on Apple TV right now. It's called For All Mankind. Mm -hmm. uh, really cool thought experiment. It the whole premise of the show is what if the Soviets had beat the Americans to the moon in the space race back in the yeah. Uh, yeah. It's really cool. And it basically, it starts on the very first episode, the Soviets beats, beat the Americans to the moon. And then it kind of tells this alternate story of history and how the space race actually would have continued because the Americans would have, 
And at that time, I actually, I've never understood really the, I didn't understand the significance of the space race. Mm -hmm. A, because I'm used to all this technology doesn't seem crazy that we could go to the moon, but it was really cool seeing that through the eyes of someone who lived during that time period, how unbelievable that was. But most importantly, like how it just made Americans think we can do anything, we mm -hmm. can do anything we want. We are a nation of doers. And I feel like that they don't have this. That ethos needs to come back. And I think that's I the biggest cultural thing is like, if you look at the music, the pop music, and it's it's laced with depressants and all that other stuff and drugs. It's nihilism, nihilism. Yeah, it's nihilism, Whatever. really. And like, I think it is, we need a belief. We need, we need a strong leader to basically incentivize us and, and give us some conviction that like there's purpose here. You need to unite people behind a goal as yeah. well. Like yeah. space is the perfect goal. We're going to space. We're going to space. And I'll never forget. There, I was at a, uh, I was at an event with Mark Hart and Worth Ray, who run Corriente. Uh, these guys are like five years ahead of everybody, and they're like two two years ago. They were like space is the next big thing, and I think that as time passes, I'm like that's really coming to fruition because I think you need to unite people in, in a goal subsidized by like fiscal expenditure. Cause it's, that's a high capital expense to go to, to space. That's not like, Hey, this consumer software is going to sell you this cool new lollipop. You know, you have to, you have to get a nation on your back to go to space and like you create all sorts of new stuff. You learn all sorts of new things. That's a growth mentality. And we're, I think we're going to get back there. I think so. Tyler, I can't believe you just offended the lollipop software uh, industry. Surveyors of, uh, yeah, the industry. Yeah. That's a powerful <laughs> industry, my friend. Not Dude, the TAM on that thing is huge. We're going to spack it. It's going to be huge. <laughs> the lollipop software. No, but yeah. I, I, I agree with you. I, you know who made this point too? It's um, Daniel DeMartino Booth. She's like, when you, I mean, that's why, to be honest, I think the infrastructure bills are actually such a good idea. There is, there's like some pride in actually doing. I really do believe this, especially, honestly, I, I believe this in America too. I don't think people want handouts. That's not what they want. They want to feel as if, and they actually want to achieve and put in the work. They just need wins. It's kind of like when things are not going well at a company, you need to give people really small wins because small wins lead to bigger wins. And it's about creating momentum and I wonder if there's an opportunity to do that through some of these infrastructure builds. You can actually build stuff that you can see uh, and tangibly feel proud of. Yeah, but you need the skill set. I think like, here, I'll speak for myself here. Like, I had a liberal arts education. It was okay, and <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is a top twenty-five school, and I was like, this. I would never pay for that again, and. To me, I'm like, I didn't really have a tangible skill set until I got out of school and started learning markets and finance and all this stuff. And like, it's, and that's still not even like a tangible thing. That's just moving money from here to there. Like, I wish I had a skill set. And I think a lot of America feels like that, where it's, I, I want to build something. Teach me how to build something. And a, a small majority of American actually can can do that. And I think we need to teach people from the ground up like real skills so that we can build stuff with an infrastructure plan.
That's a really good point. So, I mean, a lot of this does come down to education, I guess. So just a greater focus on STEM. Is that? Yeah. I mean, I wish I had it. I should, I should have done that, but you know, it was, you know, it was 18 and full of testosterone and like not thinking further than a day out, you know, (laughs) I feel like I bet a lot, I bet a lot of American males probably feel the same way. And, you know, luckily I found something that's like super fascinating and, you know, really makes the world work, but well, do I have a skill set besides like analyzing macro things and trading stocks and derivatives? Like, is that really a skill set? I don't know. Tyler. Yeah. I'm actually realizing I'm not sure you have a skill set, my man. We got to talk. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> the I'm cover is blown. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm just messing with you. Um, yeah. Awesome. I think we've we've rambled long enough here. What are you up to? I mean, you're you're traveling, right? At the end of this week, you're going to SF. Yeah, getting a little uh, little tiny dinner night away, uh, meeting some buddies, and yeah, then uh, back in and you know doing the dad thing again. So doing the dad thing again. Nice. Yeah. Um, very cool. Are you excited? How about you? What yeah. do you got? What am I gonna do? I'm gonna golf on Saturday. I'm very excited about that. Extremely excited. We, yeah. You know what I never got about New York City is like, you have to get on like public transportation with like your clubs. So or, far. It's is so it, far. Is it, this is the most miserable thing ever. It's, it, I mean, this is how badly I want to go. It's the, you know, the nearest course is like an hour and 15 minutes away in New Jersey. Yeah, you've got to lug your clubs on public transportation. Yeah. You know, then you got to go, then you got to play, then you got to go back, probably going to have a few beers. Not going to be happy on the way back, I will tell you. Not yeah. going to be a happy camper, but where yeah, in Jersey activity. God, I can't even remember. I just looked up the name of like a course that looked pretty good. I picked the closest one. And I was like, boom, book it. Yeah. Nice. So we'll see. Um, I am a Jersey native, so just curious. Ah, all right. Boom. Well, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll look it up. I'll actually look it up for you and uh, well, yeah, yeah. We'll compare cool. notes. Yeah.